Open your Bibles and join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. We conclude the letter of 1 Peter today. Begin reading in a moment in chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. There are two letters with Peter's name on them in the New Testament. They are written to different audiences. The audience of the first letter, the letter that we are completing today, is to what he calls the elect exiles, people of God who have been scattered. They are elect exiles of the dispersion, a reference to a political persecution that occurred in Jerusalem that caused people to scatter. And he identifies uh, regions where these exiles have been sent, and all of those regions are in what was then called Asia Minor, today is called the nation of Turkey. So all of these uh, who would receive this letter are people who have come to faith in Christ. Uh, For the most part, they are first-generation Christians, and they are experiencing some level of persecution, some level of suffering or sorrow or hardship as a result of what it means to be a follower of Christ Persecution suffers in our lives uh, in various ways. We live in a free society, so ostensibly we are free to believe or not believe. Increasingly, it appears that more and more people in North America are taking the second option as opposed to the first. Maybe it's always been that way. Uh, I wasn't alive back then, so I don't know. But I will suggest to you that Increasingly, there's more and more pressure upon Christians to compromise or to blend in or to give in or to do what we do because that's what everybody expects of us or that's what real people do. Increasingly, we live in a culture that doesn't appreciate Christian distinctions and doesn't appreciate Christians who want to hold to those distinctions. And the end of that is some level of sorrow or persecution. Of course, then there's the regular suffering. When I use the word suffering, most people think of personal pain. Maybe it's physical pain or uh, some sort of disadvantage in their personal lives. Maybe it's a dread disease. Maybe any number of things. But most of us don't equate suffering with persecution in our context. But increasingly, I assure you, that's going to be the case. If you're uh, under the age of 25 or so, many of you are. Uh, Thank God for being young, uh, number one. Number two, uh, understand that you are in the crosshairs of the enemy who does not want you to continue to hold to the old, old story and believe that somehow the old, old story is sufficient for your life. The enemy wants you to capitulate, to cave, and it's not because he is pursuing truth. Rather, it is because he is pursuing falsehood, and everything he does is false. I want to suggest to you that what we're going to read today is the last paragraph in 1 Peter. And what that means, of course, is that this is the last recorded exhortation that the apostle offers to people that he wants very much to rally 
He wants to bolster their hope in God, their trust in God, their future in God. And I want to do the same this morning. I want to remind you that the things of God have not changed, that God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that his message is timeless, transcends your life. Uh, Most of my life is behind me. I recognize that. I also acknowledge that uh, nothing has changed. I've lived long enough to recognize that what was true when I was 10 is true when I am not 10. What was true when I was 20 is true when I am not 20 and so forth. And I want to encourage us to recognize that the enemy continues to wreak havoc and he wants to deceive, if possible, even the church. So if you're here as a Christian, I say to that, first of all, amen. And secondly, I say to you that you should be ever vigilant. We shall see that as Peter exhorts his readers. So we've been reading in verse 6. Verse 6, of course, is tied to verse 5. Don't forget verse 5, which we read a week ago, which is a quote from Proverbs 3. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, to which he then says in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. I just want to emphasize two things this morning. I'll give them to you from the outset, and you'll see them as we work our way through this passage. Number one, humility is more important than you think. Humility is more important than you think. And secondly, you are more vulnerable than you think. Humility is more important than you think, and you are more vulnerable than you think. Those are obvious as we have read the text, but I will reiterate them nonetheless. Some have said over the years that humility is the oil that lubricates every relationship. I like that. I think it's a fitting metaphor or illustration. Humility is the oil that lubricates every relationship. When's the last time you were around somebody who was arrogant and you said, I really like being around you? Never. It turns out that nobody is impressed with arrogance, and all of us fight against it. It turns out that the human heart desires to be center stage at all times. Yours, mine, everybody else's. We want what we want when we want it, and if we can't get it, 
To quote James 4, we'll murder. That seems a little drastic, but if you dig into James 4, and this is not a sermon on James 4, you'll find it's absolutely correct. So oil is necessary to lubricate our relationships, and humility is that. Another has described humility as the secret sauce for every circumstance with people. The secret sauce for every circumstance with people. I would agree, again, that humility is the means whereby you make yourself actually attractive. People want to be around people who are humble, who are careful with their feelings or careful with their opinions, careful with their point of view, careful with, with their desires. doesn't mean you give in to those desires universally. That's not what that means. But it just means that we are careful with them, that we understand that we are to work and walk together, and that none of us has a lock on complete authority or complete autonomy, and that we are to humble ourselves in relationship to each other. But I would offer another reason for that, and that is that beyond the fact that it's merely a practical asset in your relationships, which it clearly is, it's the way of God. Notice here again in verse 6, the exhortation is to humble yourselves under God. Trust God. So the exhortation here is not merely to humble yourself in relation to other people, but humble yourself under God. I want to suggest to you that when the culture begins to persecute, when the culture begins to cause suffering in the lives of those who are uh, following God, the real crosshairs are not on you. They're on the one you're following. Well, what makes God so important that you won't compromise or that you will pursue X instead of Y? Why are you who you are? Well, the answer is God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the truth and validity of God. And that intimidates those who reject God and will not humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. It's also the nature of Jesus. Philippians 2 most famously says, Have this mind in yourselves which was in Christ, who, although he was God, humbled himself. This is the nature of what it means to be a follower of the Savior. You are committed to humility. But he also says, again, building upon the preceding verse, verse 5, that it is the means whereby we can expect an even greater grace. Now, if I were to ask you, how many of us here today arrived in need of grace? Every hand in the room would go up, and we would say, glory, glory more grace, give me more grace, to which I say, yes, God, give us more grace, to which God then says, I will give grace, but only to the humble. I will give a greater grace to those who practice a greater humility, that in fact, demanding things, either from God or from one another, with arrogance, is a way to close the grace closet. The key that unlocks that closet is humility. 
Humble yourselves because humility is more important than you think. It is the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is the, it is the means whereby our relationships begin to prosper. <coughs> Many of you in this room are married. Marriage has become the laboratory for practicing much of Christianity in my life. I'm thankful for the endless lessons that God bangs my life around with in the context of marriage. I'm grateful for my wife. She is not me, which means that one of us is usually going to get our way and the other one is not. My job is to discern when is the best time to win. And that is a moving target, I assure you. <laughs> I say that with some jest, as you know, and with some seriousness. But the reality is that God opposes the proud. He even opposes proud husbands. And he opposes proud wives. He opposes proud parents. And he opposes opposes proud sons and daughters and proud brothers and sisters. He opposes proud friends and proud church members and proud pastors. Because this is not the nature of God. God opposes the proud and will not help us be more proud. He will not. Instead, he wants us to reflect him and his glory. And the nature of God is in spite of, listen to me, in spite of our rebellion against him, and I use that word carefully, rebellion. We have rebelled against God. We are insurrectionists. We are anarchists from the authority of God. And in spite of that insurrection and rebellion against God, God sent his only begotten son in the world to rescue me from me and you from you and, from, and them from them, whoever those people are. This is the message of the good news of the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely would a righteous man die for another man? But Christ died for us while we were sinners. We were less than righteous. We were unrighteous. In fact, we were enemies of God. And he has rescued us. This is the nature of God. And so humility is the, the means whereby we testify that we are followers of God. And we submit to God while we submit to others. And because we submit to God, it empowers our submitting to others. This is the nature of what it means to be a follower of God. Again, this is the last paragraph in this letter. I don't know what you think needs to be said in the last paragraph of the last conversation that you're going to have with anybody. But I'm pretty sure 
that you're going to attach a significant level of emotional weight to the last paragraph of the last conversation that you're going to have with someone. And Peter chooses to focus upon humility. It turns out it's more important than we think. He declares here in verse 6 that we are to show humility toward God as regards his power. Look at what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That, that's an interesting phrase. In the scripture, it's almost never used, mighty hand of God, almost never used outside of the context of the Exodus experience. So go back to Exodus chapter 3, and God is talking to Moses, and he's, he tells Moses that he's going to send him to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he's going to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses is to instruct that. But then God offers this caveat in Exodus 3.19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That phrase is used six or seven times in the book of Exodus. It's used again in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. In, in Deuteronomy 7, it's 40 years in the future, and they're about to go into the promised land, and Moses is warning them before they go in, the reason that God is going to give you these lands, these houses you didn't build, and you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig, and harvest from vineyards that you didn't plant, the reason God is going to give you that is not because of you, not because you have such great potential, not because you have such great credibility, not because you're so easy to love, but rather, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a, and here it is, mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see that phrase all through the Exodus experience, the mighty hand of God, to which therefore now Peter says, humble yourselves because the mighty hand of God is your ally. It's the power of God that you need to humble yourself under. Let me remind you of something. You cannot fix everything. You cannot solve everything. You cannot answer everything. You cannot be everything. You cannot. Humble yourself under the mighty power of God, the mighty hand of God. Trust in God. It brings God glory when you say, I can't, but he can, and I'm looking to him. Submit your way under the mighty hand of God. We are to also, verse 6 says, submit ourselves to the timing of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, he may exalt you. There are a lot of reasons why people get angry with God, seemingly. But it seems to me that one of the key areas, the key areas of real concern that people have with God is that he doesn't work on our time. We want God to do this yesterday, to fix it. We don't want to wait. We don't want to endure. Don't talk to me about perseverance. We want God to fix things, fix them now. How long am I going to have to put up with him or her or them or those? 
How much longer? How long, O Lord? The psalmist asks again and again. That is unknowable until it's known. How long before the Lord rescues? How long before the Lord sets things right? How long before the Lord redeems us from this problem? How long before the Calvary comes? We don't know. We don't. But we are to submit ourselves to the timing of God and to trust Him in the interim. People don't want to do that. And they get angry and they think that somehow by, because you can pout with your family or you can pout with your boss or you can pout with your siblings or whatever. Because you're a powder by nature, you think by pouting at God, somehow you're manipulating God. <laughs> Let me tell you, friends, your human strategies don't work with God. Because God is not slow because you're a problem. Or God is not slow because you've got some sort of deficiency. God is slow by our measure, by our time, because God is doing far more than just you. Susan and I have three children. Now we have nine grandchildren. We used to be in control. Those days are gone. Life was simple when it was just a twosome. Got a little more complex when we added the first child. And then it just got out of control. And now when we're all together, it is 100% fun until it's not. <laughs> and if I were in charge, and I'm not, it'd be fun all the time. And he would stop doing that. And she because I have six granddaughters and only three grandsons, so it's more likely a she problem than a he problem. <laughs> if she, but the point is, we can't even control our own families, friends. You don't have what it takes. You can't control all the pressures and all the, the temptations and all the trials. There are wandering eyes and there are wandering minds and there are wandering hands and wandering affections. There's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, and it affects our children and our grandchildren, and it affects them when they're six, and it affects them when they're 16, and it affects them when they're 36. It doesn't really matter. You're not in charge. God has power, and God has a calendar, and He's at work in both arenas. Humble yourselves. There's a third area where we can humble ourselves, and that is in verse 8, rather in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. The word anxiety here is the word for worries. Cast all your worries on him because he cares for you. It's interesting, this word here translated cast is an interesting word in the language of the Bible. It's a verb only used twice in the New Testament. The only other place is when they arrive in Jerusalem uh, and they need a colt for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem uh, on the back of a colt. The circumstance today we call Palm Sunday. And the scripture says the disciples, having obtained the colt, threw their cloaks on top of the colt. They threw, 
same verb. Here translated cast, uh, one commentator said this word would better be translated hurl, hurl. Now, depending on your understanding of the word hurl, that feels a little more violent than just cast or even throw. But in this case, it's not a passive word. It's not, it's not a, uh, Michael had a pencil up here. I've got a pen, so I'll just dig out. Here's a pen. Uh, it's not like this. That was not a cast. That was not a hurl. That was not a throw. That was a toss. The Bible does not say, toss your worries on God. It says, throw them. Throw them. And what does that mean when you throw your worries on God? It means you're depending on Him. And God is honored when we're depending upon Him. God is glorified when we are depending upon Him. Our worries are not righteous. Perhaps the most famous paragraph in all the Scripture on worry is this one from Matthew 6, where Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is means unbelievers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, how important is humility? Well, it turns out it is the means whereby we get to unlock the grace cabinet of God. And we get to trust God's power, and we get to trust God's timing, and we get to trust God that he can handle the things that we know about that we believe he doesn't know about. Cast all your anxieties, throw all your anxieties on him. Humility is more important than you think. I want to say it differently. If I were to ask you what really matters in your relationship to God. How do you know that you're a faithful Christian? How do you know that you're a growing Christian? How do you know that you're a righteous person? You might quote 1 Corinthians 13, and by the way, you should. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. He said, that's how you know that you're a faithful Christian. Or you might quote Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, etc. You might quote that and say, that, that's how you know you're a growing Christian. And you'd be right. But don't think for a minute 
that you can leave humility off of that list. Because the Bible is clear that God opposes pride. Worry has a component. Worry is a complicated gumbo of stuff. But the thing that holds worry together is pride. It is a confidence that somehow we are the fix for that. We don't trust God for his power. We don't trust God for his timing. And it shows up in our worries. And the reason we don't is because we're proud. We're not humble. God gives a greater grace to those who look to him. If I'm never going to see you again, and I plan to, by the way, but if I'm Peter and I'm never going to see you again or write you another letter, I want you to know the oil that lubricates your relationship with God is humility. It's more important than you think. You're also more vulnerable than you think. Notice what he says here in verse 8. He identifies the adversary, the devil. Those are two different words for the same person or being. The word adversary just means enemy. And we know that essentially he's the enemy of our soul. Go back to chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. I'm reminded that it's soul care that really matters to God. We are not to simply fear the one who can kill the body. In fact, we're instructed as such in Matthew 10, verse 28 and following. Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And then he asked this same rhetorical question. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? Your hairs are numbered, and you are more value than sparrows. Acknowledge God before men. This is the point that he's making here, that ultimately God is not our enemy, that there is an enemy, and he is a liar, and his target is our soul. He uses another term, verse 8, the term is the devil. The devil, the word devil just means slanderer or accuser. He's a slanderer and an accuser, meaning he's a liar. A liar. He is a liar from the beginning and cares nothing about truth. And he wants very much to destroy you and me in an attempt ultimately to destroy God. He makes another point, verse 6, that God is the one who cares for us. Contrast that in verse 8 with the fact that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. When's the last time you found somebody describing their pet lion as someone who cares for them? Yes, they care for them at supper time. 
I'm a big fan of zoos, and if you're not, you should repent and become one. I love to go to see the big cat exhibits. They've always got the big glass, and you sit there, and you can watch these cats. For the most part, like 99% of the time you visit, since you visit during daytime hours, they're snoozing, which is not very exciting. I wish I had a, you know, a prod or a stick or something where I could wake the cat up, make him walk around, you know, gnaw on some meat or something. But invariably, they're sleeping. But every now and then, you get one to wake up, and they amble over to the the glass, and there's some little toddler or something, you know, a two-year-old looking over the glass, and they're banging on the glass, and the cat's just looking at them. The cat outweighs this two-year-old 50 times probably, and with one chomp could make lunch of the toddler. But there is this glass. Every now and then, the cat will get animated. The kid's banging on the glass as if somehow the cat has no access, and of course he doesn't. I'm reminded that the agenda of that cat is to, to, to stay satiated, and primarily they're carnivores, so they're hungry, and toddlers make great meals, but they're not interested in protecting the toddler. They're interested in eating. That's his argument here. God cares for you, but your enemy wants to devour you. You're more vulnerable than you think. The toddler, looking through the glass, thinks they're not vulnerable. And, truth be told, they are not, as long as the glass holds. And if they did, the zoo would be out of business for the lawsuit they'd have to pay. In our case, the devil does have access to us. He has ways of intersecting with our lives and, and the forward movement of our uh, lives in ways that we don't understand. But understand this, that he has a monstrous roar seeking to terrify us, not comfort us. God, on the other hand, verse 6, is caring for us. Caring for us even in the things that don't feel terribly caring. The devil wants no, has no regard for us and has no regard for our condition. He then mentioned one other comment, and that is that he is seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. It turns out that the agenda of the devil is your faith, to destroy your faith, to destroy your confidence in God. I, uh, I want to step back a minute and, and tease that out, pull a string, if you will, and ask you a question. What's the best way to bring glory to God? What's, what's the way that God expects you and I tomorrow, this week, to bring glory to Him? Well, we might say it's simply to trust Him or to believe Him or to obey Him. But understand that the the soil of all of that is, is called faith. Faith. We are to believe God, that believe God is more precious than what the world can offer or what the devil can offer. That God is more true, that God is more right, that, that God is more valuable. Again, use a marriage analogy. Why do people make vows of, of allegiance, loyalty, devotion, 
charity toward one another for the rest of their lives. Why do they do that? Because in their mind, they've calculated that the value of that person is greater than the aggregate value of all other persons. And now I'm going to pledge my entire life and livelihood and future together to you. You, with all of your troubles or brokenness or heartaches or disappointments, better or worse, sickness and in health, I don't care, me and you. And I pledge myself to you. And that vow is supposed to somehow keep them committed a year from now when they're tired or tired of it, or five years from now when they're lonely or they're discouraged, or 10 years from now when they're overwhelmed or outnumbered or their circumstances don't please them. And how do you get from wedding day to that? I'll tell you how. Because every day, your devotion to your promise is under attack. Every cotton picking day. So, what's going on with your relationship with God? From day one until day now, you've been under attack. When you knew it and when you didn't. And if you find yourselves away from God, understand it didn't happen just yesterday. It happened because you were not vigilant probably for a long time. His antidote from being away from God or having your faith wounded or even destroyed is contained in three commands. Verse 8, verse 9, be sober-minded, be watchful, Resist him. Be sober-minded. This is the word for vigilance. Vigilance means that you, are, you get up every day and you pay close attention, careful attention. There are a lot of things in our life that requires to be vigilant. You know, if you're not vigilant with your money, you'll run out of money. If you're not vigilant with your weight, you'll get overweight. If you're not vigilant with your health, you will be out of health. If you're not vigilant with your relationships, your relationships kind of go sideways, get out of control. If you're not vigilant with your life, your life will get out of control. This is, what he, this is the exact word that he uses, verse 8, be sober-minded. In other words, you're not getting up and just being frivolous. You're not just getting up and saying, well, I don't know what I want to do today. I'm just going to be reckless. I'm going to be frivolous. I'm just going to, you know, throw my life into the wind and see where it blows me. Well, what in the world should you do with that? You should reject such a notion. You should say, that's not where 
my life is going to prosper. You're to be sober-minded. You're to be serious about your life. I don't mean that you don't have humor in your life. That's not at all what he's talking about. But you are vigilant with your life. You're not a slug. You're not sloppy with your life. You're not sloppy with your faith. You're not sloppy with your allegiance to God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And be vigilant in doing so. Be watchful. Secondly, the word watchful. It's just the word that just means alert. Alert. Uh, I want to encourage you to recognize that not everybody who claims to be alert is alert. Susan used to work for a place of business that had uh, outside security. The outside security stayed outside in their car, looking at their phone. One day, the outside security person was required to get out of the car. And the outside security person was wearing house shoes. (laughs) My wife didn't feel very protected. I don't know. I'm thinking if you're a watchman, you should wear something other than house shoes. Standard equipment. I'm reminded that if you're going to follow God and you're going to fight against the lion who wants to eat you up and destroy your life, you should maybe get ready to fight. You should come dressed for the occasion, which is the entire argument of Ephesians 6, put on the entire armor of God. You don't go to war against the devil and not be vigilant and not be alert. You get up knowing what's going to happen today. You're going to have to fight to win. Now you hope it's not a real bloody fight, but it might be, and you're ready if that's what comes, because you are a watchman. Some have said, well, Brother Greg, how long must we watch? The answer to that, again, I don't know. We are to humble ourselves so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. How long must we be watchful? I don't know. I don't know how long you're going to live. But I want to tell you that as long as I'm your pastor and I have something to say at the end of your life, I will be happy to announce the end of your watch. But until then, you are to be watchful because you know how vulnerable you are. How does Satan attack us? hundred thousand ways perhaps and you can look at your life and you can see where you made a turn or you made an adjustment or you took a new opportunity or you changed some things or you didn't change some things and now you find yourself here instead of here and you may ask yourself how did I get here well you're smart trace it back And I assure you, friend, the turn you make way back then is a turn that you can attribute to the fact that you were not paying attention. You thought it wouldn't matter. You thought it didn't matter. You thought it would all work out. And now you're here. 
And Satan has been gnawing on your flesh. Then he says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. The point, of course, is it's not passive. What kind of resistance should we have against the devil? Firm resistance. Strong resistance. Not passive. So we're to trust God. He has power. He cares. He he calls upon us to continue to trust him and to believe him and to believe that he is the one who satisfies and he is the one who can bring joy. And that's his summation. Verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, you know the one that you've humbled yourself toward, who's called you to his eternal glory, will himself, think of that, himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And to him be dominion forever and ever. He breaks into praise and doxology because of God and the power and love of God. I want to encourage you today, friends. There's nothing greater, nothing more critical, nothing more important, nothing more valuable, nothing more life and death, nothing more eternally consequential than your relationship to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Nothing. And if you found yourself today in the jaws or the seeming jaws of the devourer, there's only one way to be spared, and that is to humble yourself and to return to God. Trust God, hope in God, believe God, follow God, and lead your family to do it, and lead your friends to do it, and make sure that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and a thousand or 10,000 more next days that are yet future for us that we continue to help one another to do the same. And may God give us grace. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would help us to think wisely about your word, think wisely about the devil, the way he works. He's a liar. He has brought condemnation upon many, but not upon us. May we stand against him, stand against his lies and against his schemes. Help us, Father, to trust you at all times, to believe in you. We want God to humble ourselves as we should. Give us grace to do so today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hey, before you go, let me uh, mention a couple of things. Number one, 